Good morning. Welcome to Sandy Ridge this morning. It is good to see so many people here. The house is very well filled, and so welcome every one of you. Home folks, looks like more of us are here than have been here probably most of the winter. That's good. Welcome our visitors here as well. We hope that you feel welcome here and can participate in our worship service. Shall we bow our heads and pray? Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning in this place. Lord, we just sang songs of being thankful that we cannot find an ultimate rest here on this earth. And ultimately, our rest will only come someday with you. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to see the purpose of our lives here on this earth, the why of of why we're here and what you want us to do. We pray, Lord, as we look into your word this morning, you would give us wisdom and insight, but also, Lord, a willingness to, to hear what you have to say to us and to do what you want us to do. We invite you here. Lord, we want and desire the Holy Spirit to, to move amongst us. And uh, we just pray, Lord, that in every part of the service, you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, our service is a bit of a special service. We call it council meeting. And I've wondered sometimes, I've grown up knowing what council meeting is, but probably to some people that's a strange concept. What's council meeting? Why do you have it? And is it necessary? And we often refer to the scriptures on examining ourselves before we approach communion. And every one of us probably knows the scripture. First Corinthians chapter 11 28, it says, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Now, it goes on to say the reason we examine ourselves is so that we don't eat and drink unworthily and be guilty of of the, the blood and body of the Lord. Let a man examine himself. So that's part of the purpose. I hope we don't wait for a service like this to start examining ourselves. This is part of daily walking with Jesus and examining our, our hearts, but it's particularly important that we, that we do this. What does it mean to examine? About every two years, if you are a, a CDL holder, you have to be physically examined. And I've talked to some of you about that, and it's, it's not really that great of an experience. Um, why do they have examinations? Physical examinations that we don't enjoy. Well, I guess the purpose is to see if we're still qualified to drive a truck. I think maybe Larry Slaybaugh could say this, but I think with flying it's even more often. Maybe annually? I'm not sure. But what is so important about being examined? Well, the the idea is, is are you safe to be on the road or are you safe to be in the skies if you're flying an airplane? But that examination is... As they're checking you out, they're measuring that against a set of criteria. Now, we don't always agree with the criteria, and we maybe think it's a little ridiculous sometimes, you know, what you have to be, uh, what they want to know about you. But there is is a standard there that that they examine us against to see whether or not you still qualify to drive a big rig down the road. So when we examine ourselves to take part in the Lord's Supper, 
we would all probably know the right answer. What do we test ourselves against? Is It's the Word of God, right? We all know the right answer to that. But let me ask you a question, and don't raise your hands, but I want you to seriously answer this question. How many of you, in the last week, sat down with your Bible, you opened your Bible, and as you were reading God's Word, when questions arose, you maybe jotted them down, or you spent some time looking at the context, what is the purpose, why was this scripture written? Or you looked up words you didn't understand? Or maybe you just made observations about the text and you mulled that over? How much time do we spend studying the Word of God? I think it's a good discipline. Every one of us knows that part of the Christian life is you've got to read your Bible, right? And we're in such a fast day and age that we have Bible apps, we have podcasts, we have ways to speed up taking in God's Word. And those are good tools, but we have to remember that to really benefit from the Word of God, we have to study the Word of God. Every so often when we change Sunday school classes here, you know, new teachers get appointed, and, and when someone becomes you know, a Sunday school teacher, I think there's just this kind of a weight that goes with that, like, oh, wow, I really need to study now. Because I've got to make sure you know, I'm ready to teach my class. I find that even in having to preach that you know, I don't have a choice. If, if I don't study, it's, just, it's not going to work. And so there are things that kind of push us to study. But I hope we can have a vision for studying the Word of God that is beyond just fulfilling a responsibility that we're called to. How much time are we spending examining ourselves in the Word of God? Is it possible that we read a lot of Scripture in our daily experience or weekly experience without ever really studying it to understand? Why is that so important? I have another question for you, and this don't be ashamed to raise your hand here. How many of you this morning have a Bible that is, is called a study Bible, has notes at the bottom? How many of you have study Bibles here this morning? All right, quite a bit. Um, we have so many resources today in, in our Bibles. We have study Bibles, we have commentaries, we have dictionaries, we have concordances. But I, I want to I challenge us a little bit, even on our use of study Bibles. This is just an extra here. You know, every one of us, I think, believes that God's Word is inspired. Scripture tells us this is inspired by God. The notes at the bottom are not inspired and I think there's a tendency for us, and I do the same thing. I've got to be careful when I'm studying even to preach. There's a tendency of us when we read the scriptures and we come to a verse and we say, oh, I don't know what that means. So we drop down, what do the study notes say? Oh, that's what it means. And then we move on. That's, that's good, but we have to practice the interpretation of scripture for ourselves. How do you find out what God's word means? If we simply rely on commentaries on other men's thoughts, I think we are, we're missing something. For one thing, we all come up with different interpretations. I don't know if you've ever noticed it when you read commentaries. You can read three commentaries and sometimes you get three different uh, opinions of the scripture. I don't know where I first heard this, but I was challenged years ago in my own Bible reading is when we're, when we're reading through the scriptures and we, and we, we go through that, make observations of the text Try to understand, what is it saying? If you're not sure, look, look into some things a bit more, but come to what you think is a good understanding of it. And then, if you want to look at commentaries, sometimes when I, when I do that, I, I say, I think this is what the, the Scripture is saying. 
and you go to a commentary and you're like, oh, I didn't think of it in that way. But instead of going straight to what does everybody else think this means, we seek to understand for ourselves. I think it's pretty important that we have that kind of a discipline. Open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. And this morning's message is very basic. Why should we study the Bible? You might think, well, we don't have to make a case for that. But I think it's very important that when we think about examining ourselves, not just for communion, but in general, when we are examining our lives against God's standard, which is in His written Word, let's see what the Bible has to say about it. Why should we study the Word of God? I'm going to read one verse there. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says this. As newborn babes... Desire the sincere milk of the word that she may grow thereby. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that she may grow thereby. The first point I'd like to make this morning about Bible study is Bible study is essential to growth. Here it describes it as being a baby. Baby needs milk. It's not going to grow without milk. Uh, my wife and I had seven children. And the process of raising children, you know, is a newborn baby, they need milk, and they let you know when they need it. They're very, they're very vocal about it. And if, if we don't give them the diet they need at that point, then they're not going to grow. They're not going to develop. So this, this passage here talks about several, several um, attitudes we bring to Bible study. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that she may grow thereby. I'm actually, I have the scripture here, and I'm going to add the uh, first verse and the third verse as well. Right before that it said, Wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that she may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Verse 3 kind of alludes to if you have, you've, you've had a taste of it. You, God has been gracious to you in how he's brought you out of darkness into light. So you've had a taste of it now like a baby, he says in verse 2, I'm going to highlight that one, desire the sincere milk of the word. Several words I want to share with you here to maybe flush this out a little bit more to understanding verse 2. First one here is our attitude. Here he says it's like a baby, a baby that grabs for the bottle, cries for, for mom as soon as hunger pangs are felt. Like I said before, if we don't respond to the cry of a baby, they, they up the ante a bit. You know, the cries just get louder, right? So without milk, the baby doesn't grow and develop. So our attitude towards the Scripture should be like a baby. That kind of a, a desperation is, I have to have this. I got to have the Word or else I'm not going to grow. I, ha I, know, I know in my heart that if I don't get this, I'm not going to grow. That talks about the attitude we bring to the Scripture, like a baby that is desperately hungry and really knows that they need it. The second thing is appetite. Second phrase of our verse there says, desire the sincere milk of the word. Desire. How much do you enjoy sitting down with your Bible to read and to study? I realize sometimes in life, it kind of falls back as a, as a discipline. We don't always feel like it. But here he says, our, our appetite should be fairly keen that we desire this. We crave the word. In, uh, back in the Old Testament, in Psalm 19, 
verse 10, it says, It's more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Is Bible reading sweet to you? Is it a good experience for you? If it's not, is that a problem with the Bible, or is that a commentary on yourself or myself? If I'm not enjoying being in the Word, is that because the Word has a problem, or because there's something wrong with me? There are several types of, of Bible students. I like how um, Howard Hendricks, I enjoy reading his books, and I've, I've seen some of the things he teaches. He has a book called Living by the Book. It's a very, very practical book on, on Bible reading. And he talks about three different types of Bible students, the way we come to Scripture. He says the first type is, is the nasty medicine type. To them, it's just, oh, you know how it is with medicine you don't like to take. It's just, it's bitter, it's not good, but it's good for what ails you, and so we take it. That's one way we can approach the Bible is just out of basic necessity. We know we need it. The second type of Bible reader is one who is like the shredded wheat kind. Now, my children like shredded wheat, and when I grew up, I don't think I did, but I think it's because they put so much frosting or the frosted stuff on top, so it's kind of good. But you remember just the plain old, we call them hay bales, you know? It's like it's kind of dry. You know, it's nourishing, but it's dry. That's the second type of a Bible reader is, boy, it's pretty dry, but I know it's good for me, and I'll, I'll eat it. But it's kind of like chomping on a bale of hay, you know? You just you work your way through it, and, and you're, you're pretty sure you're getting some nutrition out of it, but... Certainly not the most enjoyable experience. But then the third type of Bible student is, is the strawberries and ice cream type. It's, it's delicious. It just, you just want it. We're getting into that time of year when the fresh strawberries are, are coming out. By the way, we were in Florida a couple weeks ago, and there was fresh strawberries in all the markets, and I enjoyed that. We really ate a lot of strawberries. It was good. But there's a craving there for that sweetness of a good strawberry, and then if you add some ice cream, it's just that much better. Picturing my hunger for God's word in that same way. What makes us have that kind of appetite? Paul says, desire the sincere milk of the word. Actually, this is Peter writing here. Desire the sincere milk of the word. I want it. I want it like ice cream and strawberries. I can't get enough of it. The way we acquire that kind of a taste for God's word is by feasting on it. We keep taking it in. The more we read, the more we discover, the more we grow. That appetite grows with it. I don't think this is new to any of us. Why is it that we miss out on what God has for us? There is so much rich, uh, richness in the Word of God if we would see that as it is God's direct Word to you. It's His direct Word to me. And not only that, it's, it is His standard that we, we gauge our lives against. But so many times we approach God's Word as, you know, we need it. You know, it's shredded wheat, but we're not that engaged with it and not that excited about it. And the third thing he tells us in Peter here, what is the aim? The last part of the verse there. Why do we study the Bible? He says that ye may grow thereby. Probably most families somewhere in a closet have a, or on a door somewhere, have this thing of markings, you know, where the children... When they're about three years old, you put them up against the door and you make a mark. And then in about two more years, they, they're a little taller. You make another mark and you write the date down. And some of you maybe did that growing up. We see the progression of growth in a child when, we, when you lean them up against, or put them up against a wall and, and you make those marks. And as the years go by, we say, wow, look how you're growing. But at some point, we become adults 
and the line doesn't really move. In fact, I think the older you get, it might go down. I'm not sure, physically. I think sometimes older people get a little shorter. That, that maybe is or isn't. But there, the growth as an adult physically stops. Now, spiritually, I hope that doesn't happen. But sometimes I think maybe we see those, those areas of growth in our lives, but then it just, there's no new marks. Here he says, part of the reason we study the Scripture is to grow. To grow. Grow in what? What are we growing t- towards? We're not just studying to satisfy our curiosity. There's a lot of good stories in the Bible, but we don't read the stories just because it's a good story or because it's entertaining or that we want to accumulate knowledge. Knowledge by itself is, that's not an end goal of studying the Bible. It is about our transformation. We study to be conformed to the image of Christ. When the Bible says in Romans 12, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, part of that transformation comes by being in God's word and studying, taking it in. The Bible is God's primary tool to help you develop as an individual. I hope you believe that. I really hope you believe that. The second thing we want to look at, why should we study the Bible? Well, it's essential to growth. The second thing is, the Bible, Bible study is essential to spiritual maturity. In Hebrews chapter 5, a couple verses I'd like to read here. Hebrews chapter 5, 11 to 14. If you can't see it up here on the screen, you can look it up in your Bibles. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14 says this. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are, full of, are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. In this passage, Paul says that there is a problem of learning. He says you are dull of hearing. There's a problem that these people are not able to learn. He has things he wants to say, but they're not able to learn because they are dull of hearing. You could say they have a learning disability because they're unable to hear and understand the things that he says they should be able to. Why is that? Why can't they take meat, spiritual food? What's keeping them from that? What causes dullness here? One of the issues he brings up in this passage is time. Verse 12, he says, For for when for the time ye ought to be teachers. Remember I talked about that growth scale on the wall? What if you would measure your Christian life in the same way? What if we would figure out how many years have you been a Christian? Everybody here has a different time scale. But if I would measure back, let's say for me it's 20, let's say it's 30 years for me. If I would look back, and Paul is saying, for the amount of time that has passed since you've been in the faith, you should be here. And he's saying, you're not there. I can't, I can't even teach you the things that I want to teach you because you're, you're still back here in first grade. You should be in college. He says, but you're in first grade. So he's literally saying, because of the passage of time, because of how long you've known the truth, he says, you ought to be teaching others, but you're unable to. That's kind of sobering if you think about it. Because he's, he's letting us know here that spiritual maturity is expected in the Christian life. 
we are expected to be growing and maturing and becoming more and more like Christ. Spiritual maturity is expected. Growth should be obvious over time. Then he says here, verse 13, everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. Talking about them in, in terms of being a baby. Unskillful meaning you have not you have not built up your understanding of the word. You're unable to teach others because you don't have the skills yourself to be able to do so. To be able to do so. But then he says here, what is it that makes us mature? In the last verse here in verse 14, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised. It's like a tool that you use. The more you use a tool, the more polished it is, the more flexible it is, the more useful it is. Yesterday we were fixing some fence at our house and uh, we had wire and we were tying up some wire and my son went and got me a pliers. It was this needle nose pliers out of the shop. And I, I know it's mine, I know it's been around for a while, but my goodness, that thing was rusty. You could barely even open and close the thing. That thing, is, that thing has not been used. Needed some oil and it needs some polishing, but you get a tool in your hands that's rusty and it's almost useless. I, you waste all kinds of time where you're like, get, get rid of this tool. Give me something that works. Unskillful in the word. Here he says, those who by reason of use, well used, well polished, have their senses exercised. So it doesn't matter what your capacity is mentally. It doesn't matter what your IQ is. None of us has a reason to not be growing in our understanding of God's word. All right, this is not... This is not to have a cumulative knowledge where, where you have, you know, a PhD in something. This is that we, we are learning and we are growing and we are developing where that, that tool is useful. Able to discern both good and evil. Able to take in strong meat. The mark of spiritual maturity is not how much you understand, but it's how much are you using. Some of us have a lot of Bible knowledge. We'd do Bible trivia. Probably a lot of you would do really well. But what are you doing with that? How much are you using it? It's not about accumulating knowledge. It's about use. In the spiritual realm, the opposite of ignorance is not the acquisition of knowledge, but the opposite is knowledge that is applied in obedience. So here he says they are, they're ignorant, they're unskillful, where they should have been was with knowledge, but applying it in obedience, not just accumulating knowledge. Bible study is essential to spiritual maturity. I hope you realize that you need to be growing. I need to be growing. And the only way we grow is by being in God's word. That's what shapes us. That's what gives us direction for life. And then the third observation I'd like to make this morning about why we should study the Bible. Bible study is essential to spiritual effectiveness. Bible study is essential to spiritual effectiveness. Very familiar scripture here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. I think the King James... My Bible used to say thoroughly furnished. Some versions say truly furnished, but I think it means the same thing. Complete, completely furnished, or adequately furnished unto all good works. All Scripture 
it says all Scripture. Let's think about that a little bit. All Scripture has a purpose. There's a lot of uh, Bibles or New Testaments out there. I remember the Gideons used to pass out a little Bible that had the New Testament, I think maybe the Psalms in it. And that's, that's fine. I think probably the purpose was is get it into the, the, the hands of those who have never read the Bible and you know, don't confuse them with the Old Testament. But how do we view the Bible? How do we view the Old Testament and the New Testament? Is the New Testament completely superior to the Old? Do we look at the Bible and say, well, here's the relevant passages of Scripture? How do you balance Bible reading and Bible study? Do you ever have your devotions out of Deuteronomy, for example? Or do we say, well, I don't get anything out of Deuteronomy, so I'm going to study Matthew. And we do the bulk of our study in the New, in the New Testament. How do we view the Scriptures? Is Scripture all on the same plane? Is the New Testament superior? How do we look at the Bible? Do we have a, what we call a flat view of the Bible where it's all the same? Or do we say one is greater than the other? I think maybe the way I would explain it, I think makes the most sense to me, is God's Word is a, is a progressive revelation. From Genesis to Revelation, God continually added to His revelation about Himself. And by the time we get to the New Testament and we see Jesus work through the New Testament, we see Paul's teaching, we see a completed picture where we come to the end and we say, oh, wow, look how that all comes together. Look how that all blends. So our tendency is to focus. We do tend to teach out of the New Testament, but let's not forget the Old Testament is also an inspired part of God's Word. All Scripture means all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Think about the account of Jesus. When Jesus begins his ministry, he's tempted by the devil. Jesus has just come off of a 40-day fast. And I've, I've never done a 40-day fast. I don't know if any of you have. Some have. And I've always thought I, I want to do that sometime, but I, I haven't. I don't know if my, if, my, if my flesh should handle it or not. But Jesus did that as a way to begin his ministry. And after he, after he comes off of that fast, he's very weak. And it says the devil comes to him in Jesus' weakest human moment to try to tempt him. He tempts him, first of all, he asks him the question. The, the first two temptations of the devil are questioning Jesus' authority. He says, if you are the Son of God, come on, Jesus, prove it. If you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Well, where does Jesus, what, what authority does Jesus rebuke the devil with? It's the Scripture, and it's the Old Testament. It's, out of, it's actually out of Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 1 to 3, and I'm actually going to read a couple of those verses because I think it's powerful. All three temptations of Jesus, Jesus rebukes him with Scripture, and it is the Old Testament. There is power in the Word of God, whether it's the New Testament or the Old Testament. And I hope as you study the Bible, you don't reject the Old Testament because there is important truth that God revealed. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, this is what Jesus referred to. God is talking to his people about their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. You see the correlation? Jesus is coming out of a 40-day fast, and he's referring back to a scripture where God's people just came out of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And this is what God has to say. First three verses of Deuteronomy 8. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years 
in the wilderness. And here's what he says about that 40 years. Why was he leading them for 40 years in the wilderness? He says, to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. That almost sounds like New Testament. Testing, proving, are you going to be my people or not? God was putting his people to the test in, the, in those 40 years in the wilderness. And then this is what God says to them. It says, And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Jesus quotes that to Satan. He says, man does not live by bread alone. God took his people on a journey through 40 years in the wilderness to teach them, you need me. Are you going to obey me? You need me. You can't live on bread alone. And Jesus takes that word of God and he tells Satan, Satan tempted him, oh, just make some bread. Come on. If you're the son of God, just do it. Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone. He refers back to the Old Testament. The second temptation, uh, Satan tempts him to cast himself down from the temple. Again, Jesus refers back to Deuteronomy 6. Verse 16, he says, don't tempt the Lord your God. And he refers to when Israel tempted God when they didn't have water. They complained. Jesus says, don't do that. And then the third temptation, Satan offers him all the kingdoms of the world. He takes him to a high place. He says, look at all these kingdoms. You can have all of them if you will simply fall down and worship me. Jesus again responds from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Fear the Lord, serve him, don't go after other gods. The Old Testament is also God's word, and there's power there. Jesus refers to that. In fact, most of the times when you're, reading, when you're even reading the New Testament, when they refer back to the scriptures, they're talking about the Old Testament. They're talking about the law. They're talking about the prophets because it's God's word. God's word abides forever. So the New Testament is, is further re- revelation of God, but I don't know that we say it's more important. It's more complete, but God's word is to be studied and to be understood for, you to cha- for, for God to change your life. There is power in that word of God. Going back to our scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. There's four things mentioned here that I want to bring this, I want to, bring this to, to a close here. Four things he mentions, Paul to Timothy, what benefit, what profit is the scripture to all of us here? Are four ways that the scripture is profitable. It says it's profitable for doctrine. Doctrine always can sound just like shredded wheat. Doctrine. Who wants to read about doctrine? You know, it's just, well, what is doctrine? Doctrine is teaching. We need doctrine to help structure our thinking. All right? One thing we do, I think, fairly well at in Anabaptist background in circles is, is how to live. We, we, we show how, here's how you live, right living. Well, what about thinking? What informs the way we think? Doctrine is what helps us structure the way. How does a Christian think? How should we think? And when, when all of us are first of all born again, God does, he does a miraculous work. He recreates us into a new creature. He cleanses us. He calls us his child. And then he puts us on a path. But our thinking hasn't totally changed when we're first born again. That's why, that's why the Christian life is an entire lifetime of becoming more and more like him because he has to reprogram that mind. How do you structure your thinking except we have to have doctrine? That's why we study the word of God. Teaching. Right thinking precedes right living. 
Back in the Judges, remember when it says that every man did what was right in his own eyes? Everybody lives out of what they think. Even the, even the world lives out of what they think about the world, what they think is important. But if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we have to think right. We have to think about well, what, is, what does God think about things? How does he see things? Doctrine from the Bible helps us understand some of the who questions. Who is God? Who are we? Why are we here? What's the purpose of life? Doctrine helps us understand, and it shapes, ultimately it shapes our, our worldview. What do we believe? We might ask the questions, why is there suffering? Why did Jesus have to come to earth as a human? Doctrine helps inform that. So doctrine from Scripture is what should shape our worldview. Every one of us has a worldview, how we see the world. Every religion is filled with people that have a worldview. They, they view the world through their religious beliefs. Well, as Christians, our worldview needs to be shaped by, by God's Word. How do you know how to think unless you're in the Word of God? The Word of God should also inform our values. Let me ask you a question. Think about it. I've been thinking about this for a little while here. Is there a difference between our morals and our values? How does God's word and how does specifically doctrine speak into morals and values? What shapes both of those? I looked those words up because I was trying to understand in my own mind, well, is there a difference? You know, we teach morality. We teach it to our children. Morals, the dictionary says, morals are relating to or concerned with the principles or rules of right conduct or the distinction between right and wrong. All right, Morals has to do with Here's the line, here's right, and here's wrong. That's how we teach our children. This is wrong, or this is right, this is wrong. And then we, when you translate that into conduct, we say, no, don't do that because that's wrong. Do this because that's right. So morality has a very, a very clear line of right and wrong. Well, what about the issues of life that are just not clearly one or the other? Like, not every decision we make in life really falls clearly in, well, it's not wrong, but is it right? Well, how do you know? How do you know then how to live? Values are more the idea. It's the things that we think are important. It's the things we structure our lives around. It's the things that dictate our, li- our daily life choices that may not always be so clearly morally right or wrong. Values are shaped by many influences, including our family, where we come from, our friends, uh, media, different places that shapes our values. Let me give you an example here. And sometimes we find it difficult to, to discern between the two. I've already wondered sometimes, it seems like in what, can be in our, what can be true in our Christian experience is if we don't have clear values about who we are as, as God's people, then if we simply look at at things in life as, well, it's not wrong, we make different choices than if we're valuing what the Bible has to say or what what is God's way of thinking. So, for example, um, I sometimes haul corn up to South Bend, and if you go up on the bypass, there's a big casino up there, the Four Winds Casino, and I hope hope you don't know anything about it, (laughs) but you know where it's at. And I, I drive by there, and I, I sometimes just, you know, I've looked in there, and I see, I see the place there. And I understand, I think they have some really good restaurants in there. I don't know. I've never been there. Now, if I, if I would say, okay, I, there's good restaurants in, in the casino there. 
is there a difference in how I look at this morally versus my values? So, and you might disagree with me on this, but I think I could probably morally go in there, order myself a steak, I won't gamble, I won't look at anything I shouldn't look at, and I will just pretty much avoid the experience of the place, but I'll have myself a good steak, enjoy it, and I'll leave. And I might say, morally, I don't think I sinned, right? Oh, maybe some of you say no, that's, that's wrong. What about my values? How many of my values would get violated by that? Do you see the difference? What helps me, un- what helps me think through where I go and what I do? See, my values, if they're shaped by, as I continually am taking in God's word, I'm being, inform- I'm being conformed and I'm starting to think, well, what, is, what, is the, what, what does Jesus care about? What, is he, what did he do? What are the things he was involved in? And I start to evaluate my, my basic life decisions through that framework. So my values may say, all right, I don't think this is a moral issue over here. Or this, this is kind of humorous. You ever hear the phrase, um, well, it's not a salvation issue, right? Going to, there to have a stake, not a salvation issue. Um, I've heard Merle Burkholder say a story that always, that, 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 that makes me laugh because it, it helps us see how we think sometimes about salvation issues. If we approach the Bible and say, well, this isn't a salvation issue, therefore it's not important. He, he describes it to marriage. And a husband and wife living together. And if the wife says to the husband, honey, why don't you take the garbage out for me? Does the husband ever ask, well, is this a divorce issue? Well, we say, well, that's ridiculous. Well, it, it is ridiculous. And in our Christian life, we never, if we evaluate things simply through the moral spectrum of, well, it's not wrong. I mean, this doesn't, I don't lose my salvation over it. In a marriage, we say, well, it's about relationship. Of course I'll take the garbage out. It's not about, I don't make decisions in my marriage because they're always on a scale of either the marriage breaks up or, or, or it maintains. No, we're, we're, we're far past that. It's about a good relationship. I'm, I'm doing what pleases my wife, and I'm making decisions that help build that. When I walk with God, it goes beyond just, is this right or wrong? But it goes more into, God, what are the things that make you smile? What are you pleased with? And so my values begin to be formed out of that. But brothers and sisters, I am, I'm convinced if we are not regularly in God's word, then our values are not being fully shaped by God's word. It's, it's great we come here and we have the word on a Sunday morning, but if you're not through the week being shaped by God's word, your values are being shaped by something. Your way of thinking is being informed by something. I've said here different times that I enjoy listening to things. I enjoy podcasts because I find them interesting. I learn things. But if that's, if that's my only source of inputs and I'm not being fed by God's word, my values are being shaped by something. They're being shaped by the things I'm taking in and the way I, I process life is out of that. So I challenge you this morning. We need to have doctrine to help us learn how to think. It teaches us what God thinks. It teaches us who God is and how he sees the world. We need doctrine, and I need to move on. Reproof. Uh, there's other places in Scripture where, the other, the, one other place where this word is used, in the Greek word, I can't quote it right now, but it, the word is evidence. I think it's in the faith chapter. Um, faith is the, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So it's, it can be rebuked, but it also can be 
evidence. We look at the scriptures for the proof about what God says. That's what we anchor it in. It's our proof. It's our evidence. Sometimes it does rebuke us uh, like a referee or an umpire. He blows the whistle when you're out of bounds, right? The umpire says, you're out or you're safe. And that's all based on, were you in the lines or did you, did you violate? So scripture does that. When we're talking about this morning, examining your life, proving it. What's the proof of that? It's in God's word. It reproves us. The third one here is correction. The Strong's Concordance uses the word, uh, describes this word for correction as, as straightening up again. All right, when you have a real crooked stick or something, how do you know something is crooked unless you put it beside something straight, right? When you're, when you're building a wall, you guys in construction, you go build a wall, how do you know if that wall is straight? Well, you take a level, which a level doesn't lie unless it's a bad level. I think there are those too. But you put the level up to the wall and, and that's, it's the straightening up. So correction, the Bible corrects, uh, it can correct us, our behavior, but it also can correct our thinking. It helps us realize when we're off. It's like, wait a minute, that doesn't quite sound right. And the Bible corrects us, straightening up again. Our life is a life of, of, we spend a lifetime of correcting our thinking. God is shaping us. He's conforming us. And hopefully the more mature we come as we're growing, that's becoming more straight. It's more and more like Jesus. Continually being transformed by the renewing of our mind. It's like metamorphosis. Becoming more and more like the thing God wants us to be. And the last one here, he says, is instruction in righteousness. The Bible teaches us how to live instruction and righteousness. It teaches us about right living. It doesn't only correct us on the negatives, but it also teaches us how should we live? How should we go? Where do we go? God, where do you want me to go? And the Bible gives us instructions about God's plan for our life and how to live out that plan. There's instructions for relationships in the church, practical things. There's instructions for marriage, family, business, and so many of these principles in God's word, are, they are timeless truths. In fact, when, you, when a non-Christian lives out biblical principles, they actually work. You know that? Because God's truth doesn't change. And it's amazing to me, I think even in the business world sometimes, the business world sometimes gets it right when they follow certain principles that are in the word of God. They work. It's because it's God's truth. Now, it doesn't mean it transforms the individual, but even unbelievers can unwittingly experience the blessing of following truth because it's God's way. God, the instructions for righteousness is what did God have in mind for humanity? How is life supposed to work? And if we follow God's word, it works. It doesn't mean it's perfect, but it, it works. As we close, I want to quote that last verse in uh, 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 where it says that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished. I actually like what the King James, how, or the New King James says it this way. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped. Thoroughly equipped. God desires for you to be a complete man or woman for him. God has a vision for you, who he wants you to become. He wants you to become complete, perfect. The character in a life that honors God. But he also doesn't just create you to be something perfect. He also wants to use you as that, that tool in his hands equipped. That means giving, giving you exactly what you need to do the work that he's put you here to do. Every one of you here this morning has a spiritual gift. I don't know if you've identified that in your own life or not. 
Sometimes it takes other people to help speak into that. But God gave every single one of you a spiritual gift, and he gave that to you to edify the body of Christ, to do the work that he gave you, that he put you here for. So God equips us, not just through our gifts, but as, as we grow and as we change, he equips us to do what he's called us here to do. So God desires to communicate with you today through his word. I hope, brothers and sisters, you get in the word. I hope you examine your life according to the word. It's essential for your spiritual growth. It is essential for your spiritual maturity. And it is essential for you to be equipped for what God wants to do in your life. Every day, none of us gets younger. Every day, we get closer and closer to eternity. And every time there's a death in the community, I'm always reminded of that. It kind of sobers us up a little bit. That you know what? Life is so uncertain. Every one of us is running out of time. So every day that we neglect to get into the Word of God is one less day. It's one, one fewer day that God can use us in His kingdom. I don't know how much time you have on this earth, and I don't know how much time I have, but I desire to be useful in God's kingdom. I desire that He would change me into the person He wants me to be, and that's my desire for all of us this morning. Get in the Word. Let it transform your life. Let's, uh, let's kneel for prayer. Father, we come before you with grateful hearts for your word. Lord, your word is it's quick, it's alive, it's powerful, and it's sharper than a sword, two-edged sword, the Bible says. Give us faith this morning to believe that about your word and enough faith to act on that and to, to get into your word for our own personal transformation, to know you better as our Lord and Savior, and also, Lord, to be equipped for the work that you have for us on this earth. Lord, we don't want to miss the opportunities that you gave us. We don't, want to, we don't want to squander the gifts that you've given us. But Lord, our desire is to be a people that are faithful and, Lord, that are walking the path of righteousness. I just ask you, Lord, to, to uh, through your word, just, just uh, shine that searchlight on every one of our hearts this morning. Lord, if we see our own deficiencies, help us come to you in humility, humble ourselves, and, and seek your face and get into your word. Thank you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.